Uncaged. Uncaged. A show celebrating thought leadership from today's top business leaders. The program provides a voice to amazing executives from around the globe who are shaping the world of business today and mapping the path to the world of commerce tomorrow. And now, please welcome our host, Bant Breen, as we begin another Uncaged episode. We are speaking with Michael Bohr today. Hi, Michael. Hi. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm excited to talk to Michael. Michael is the founder, chairman, and CEO of CarLots, a recently publicly listed company. Uh, CarLots is an incredibly interesting business that's revolutionizing the way that consumers and commercial vehicles re- remarket and, and sell their vehicles. And so we'll go through CarLots and the CarLots story in much more detail in a little bit. But before we get there, uh, Michael, I'd love to just hear a little bit about yourself and, and your career. Um, great. Well, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Good, fun conversation. Um, I, I guess, you know, um, probably most people don't go career all the way back to teenager, but, um, <laughs> but I'll start there because, uh, because it's relevant. Um, when I was about 16 and I had my just got my driver's license, uh, wanted to make some money. And so a friend of mine's dad had a manufacturing business that he started and uh, they made electronic connectors. And um, we got a job on the assembly line at his company in Massachusetts. And for eight hours a day, five days a week, we sat in a room with uh, you know 50 or 70 people. And we took tiny little screws, like the size of an eyeglass screw and tiny little blocks, and we screwed them together. We took one screw, one block, screwed them together, put them into a third box. And then the quality control guy would come by every once in a while and dump our <laughs> completed screws and blocks. Yeah, and- Michael, you got the screws wrong today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, it was uh, super tedious, but, you know, just seeing a business from the ground and then, you know, eventually couple summers later, worked my way into the sales department and ended up working kind of various departments in the business. Um, it, it was just very inspiring to see this company that started from nothing and it, it became a public company. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just very inspired by the whole story. And so I knew that eventually one day I, I wanted to kind of go down a similar path. Uh, I always thought it'd be a manufacturing business just because that's what uh, that's where I had um, been inspired by entrepreneurship. But yeah, I, I um, saw that I saw that you'd gone to Lehigh. So, I, you know, I could see that that manufacturing and engineering focus. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Lehigh's known. I thought I was going to go there for engineering very quickly. I, I uh, they have a business school as well, a lesser known business school, but uh, ended up uh going head first into the business school and came out with a finance degree thought I was going for an engineering degree but came out with a finance degree ended up um, getting into the world of you know financial services uh, I joined a financial fraud investigations team at, at what was then Cooper's and Librand um, and uh, eventually got into investment banking at Lehman Brothers which is no longer around and um, got into kind of deep finance corporate finance MA. Uh, went to business school and came out uh, and went back into M&A and, you know, had an awesome eight-ish year run at a, at a middle market M&A firm where we were doing kind of sub $1 billion transactions. 
but really getting to know, I mean, the, what's great about middle market M&A is you kind of dive in, you really get to know a company, you, um, you know, create a bunch of marketing materials about that company and you go to private equity groups or strategic buyers and you try to sell the company. Um, and so it's, you know, work with an owner of an asset, develop a marketing plan for that asset, find a buyer, consummate the sale um, and, um, and, and earn a fee. Right. And so that's also very relevant because that's essentially what we do in the car business today. So when I left Harris Williams, uh, which was the M&A firm I worked at, which is a terrific firm, um, and and the, my my former colleagues at Harris Williams don't really like to don't don't really like me comparing uh, M&A or investment banking to used car sales. But you know, essentially, what we do at Carlots is we take someone brings us their asset. We create a marketing plan for their asset. We find a buyer, we get it sold, and we take a fee. So it's it's essentially the exact same thing. It's just the fees are smaller, the size of the asset smaller, and we do more of them a year than um, than an M and A firm would do in deals. But um, but it's essentially you know when when I started the business with my co-founders, uh, we pulled and we continue to pull many pages from the Harris Williams playbook on how to uh, run a tight process that yields desired results. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's 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 great to see how you're applying those those models from other places into the car industry to really kind of dis disintermediate what was happening there to date. I'd love to dig deeper a little bit more and what you guys are doing in car lots uh, because it it seems to me such an interesting model. It's kind of a, almost like a consignment structure in some ways. Uh, tell us tell us how you guys got there and and how this thing has scaled. Yeah, so it, the, the, the idea started uh, just by kind of viewing how people, consumers, get rid of a car. And before we existed, there were really two ways you could do it. You could sell it to a dealer, you know, either by trading it in or just taking an offer uh, from a dealer. And by doing that, it was, it was very easy. You take your car in, you get a check, and you go home. But the values you get are obviously way low and right. the dealer then makes all the money on flipping that car. The alternative is to sell it yourself, was to sell it yourself, uh, either on Craigslist or parking it on the side of the road with a sign. Um, and by doing that, you would get more value, but it would entail hassle, inconvenience, danger, time, et cetera. And so your two options before we existed were low value, high convenience, or higher value, low convenience. Right. And what we decided to try to build is essentially a consignment store for vehicles. And so people are familiar with consignment with respect to furniture, clothing. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, there are lots of things, you know, there are big consignment businesses that are, you know. You know, actually, I wasn't even aware of the industry until there was a there's a fashion store on the corner of uh, my street that I live on in New York City, and it's a it was a consignment store. And finally, I, I one day just walked in there. I said, "What do you guys do?" So I, I learned a little bit more about that industry. It's it's a fascinating industry. Actually. It's a big industry. I mean, yeah. it's it's um, in many ways it's green. It's you know people people love to you know buy used, uh, re reuse stuff, so it doesn't yeah. kind of end up being junked. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a big and growing industry. And we decided to basically apply that industry to the automotive world. So the original business plan, uh, which I wrote back in 2010, when I left Harris Williams was, um, 
that we would, we, we thought we would kind of use a high school parking lot on the weekend or a church parking lot during the week and just have people who have vehicles come and almost like a swap meet. And we would stand in the middle and provide all the services that car buyers and car sellers are accustomed to getting that would make it easy. So we would provide the financing or the warranty right. or trade-in options and all that. So we started writing that business plan. And fortunately, I live in Richmond, Virginia. I had the good fortune that I, I kind of cold called some early uh, investors and in management of the other large car business that is in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, they were uh, very generous with their time and sat down with me with my business plan and uh, gave me a bunch of advice and, and really kind of gave me the confidence to go build something much bigger than the original idea was. Um, and so we raised a, a very small amount of money in, in 2011 and launched uh, our first location in uh, Richmond. And essentially the way it worked when we started was, you know, you would bring us your vehicle, we'd go pick it up. We would evaluate what the retail price of the vehicle was. We would get it prepared for a retail sale. So we would get it evaluated by mechanic, fixed up, Mm -hmm. put it in retail shape. We would take pictures, clean it up, take pictures, post it where everybody goes to shop for cars. And then we would go on test drives with people, offer them financing, warranties, trade-in options, just make it easy to buy your car at retail. We would get close to a retail price, not quite retail. We would take a fee. You would get everything else. And the way it all worked out is that you would typically get several thousand dollars more than your trade-in offer and you didn't have to do anything. And so we launched that in 2011 uh, and very quickly it became popular. People were regularly bringing us a vehicle that where they had a $10,000 offer from a dealer or trade-in offer and we would sell it for 14, net of our fee wow. that would be 13 and uh, they would tell all their friends. And so that's how, that's how it built. We opened the second location a year after our first and then a third a year later. And around that time we happened upon by luck and just you know a combination of luck and happenstance um this concept that there are a lot of commercial there are a lot of businesses that sell vehicles much like the consumer sells a vehicle uh, but they sell it at the auction and mm -hmm. we said why can't we take those some of those auction vehicles the ones that are close to retail ready take them straight to retail and give our get cons uh, commercial accounts more money for their cars right and that really launched the business it kind of changed the trajectory of the business quite a bit right um, i mean it, you you then had a lot more product that you could get your hands on so you can scale that's right rapidly yeah. that's right yeah i mean for every you know for every consumer consignment we're having a, an individual conversation with a consumer about selling their car for our commercial consignments we talk to a business and they could have thousands of cars for us or tens of thousands of cars for us so um, it, you know, it, it allowed scale much faster than kind of going one, one car at a time. And so with that, we opened a few more locations in the Carolinas. Then we partnered with uh, a private equity firm called TRP Capital, which was used to be Roger Penske's private equity firm. With, with that capital, we, uh, we ended up opening in Florida, Illinois, Texas, uh, and really kind of dramatically scaled the business. And that leads us to 2020, COVID hit, uh, which was a very short-term downward blip and then a much longer-term upward blip, uh, but continues to have both positive and negative consequences to our business. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, came out of that, saw a tremendous amount of interest in uh, our business and our growth prospects. And as we went to raise capital, uh, the SPAC route uh, emerged as a very attractive way for us to raise capital and provide liquidity for our, some of our early investors. 
Um, and so that's the route we went down and consummated a deal in January of 2021, which uh, effectively uh, resulted in us being a public company trading on the NASDAQ with ticker symbol LOTZ. Excellent. I mean, what a, what a great story. And Michael, I, I would say that you make it seem like it was so simple, <laughs> but, but I imagine that there were inflection points. And I think you, you obviously alluded to some of them uh, where you had the one, the one dealership or the one showroom and then the, and then the multiple ones and then the private equity money coming in. But I, I, I see that a lot of companies, emerging companies have these moments that where they kind of have to rethink the operation of the business. And I'd just be curious to hear your, your thoughts on that. You know, when, when did you have to rethink how you were handling HR and how you were handling training and all of those types of things? Well, to, to be honest, you know, it, it definitely wasn't easy. And it, it, it was a long time. It was 10 years, almost yeah. exactly from when we founded the business to when we emerged as a public entity. Um, and I had a very solid co-founders who, uh, without whom this business would not be where it is today and uh, thinking through all of that stuff. And so, in fact, um, there were a couple inflection points. One was, you know, bringing on the commercial consignment opportunity uh, Two was kind of investing more heavily in technology and kind of the online car buying um, uh, applications that allow people to, you know, connect with us easily. But in reality, the, the real um, what, what really makes this company run is just a, a more slow and steady focus on all of those things um, that created who we are today. From the time that we launched our business, there were much faster capital raising and growth businesses that have both succeeded and failed in historically uh, extravagant fashion. So, you know, we obviously Carvana started around the time we did, and they're a $50 billion company that sold 92,000 cars last quarter. Um, they've grown much faster than we have. It's a slightly different business model. There was another company called Beacon that while we raised $500,000, they raised something like $300 million and went out of business within a couple of years. And so I think where, where we fit in the middle is we really took our time to make sure that this consignment model that we were building would work before we scaled it. And there are other businesses that are public now and that are in our space that have tried consignment and it hasn't worked for them. And it's because they, they went in in a very big way, like many, you know, fast, big capital businesses do. And, we, you know, we were kind of unfortunate slash fortunate to have not launched our business in a big kind of uh, in, in Silicon Valley or areas where people raise tons of money. And we did it on 525,000 and we raised a second round. It was a million and a half. And at the end of the day, each time we raised capital, we had to make it work before we could go back to investors and make more. And so by doing it slower, we've obviously hosted you know, we've been on the Inc. 500 for many, you know, like we, we yeah. very quickly. Uh, it's, not, it's, I, I, I really like this uh, point that you're raising now. I, I've, I've actually gone on a similar path and trajectory with my with my own business, which is this idea of 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 building a little bit slower than the accelerated fashion that is, uh, I would say, worshipped in Silicon Valley. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting difference. It's it's certainly not celebrated at the same in the same way, but 
Um, I think there's a lot of companies that would benefit from that type of structure. Sometimes I look at some of these, uh, I'd say, you know, rocket ship companies that raise so much money and, and I'll, I'll sit down with uh, their leaders and I'll ask, so what are you going to do with, <laughs> with all this capital? You've just raised, you know, a hundred million dollars. What are you going to do with it? And they'll look at me, you know, absolutely bewildered, like, I have no idea what we're going to do with that money. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it, there is something about learning what works, building it, staying, pro thinking about profitability, thinking about kind of building a healthy business. And, and, uh, and, and so it's great to hear your, your, your thoughts there. So, you know, you, th this Carlotts has been incredible because it's played a key role in reinventing uh, a, a space that is going through a lot of change right now, which is, you know, how cars are bought and sold, uh, how companies that own lots of vehicles, how they're, uh, how they're actually getting rid of some of those vehicles. Um, how do you, how do you see this playing out uh, in, in the near future this year and, and, and going forward? Uh, what, are, what are the big evolutions that you think are going to happen in this space? Yeah. So there, you know, there are lots of, um, Lots of things we're seeing in the market. Uh, there's some sh very short-term dislocations. You know, the, uh, there's been a lot written about the chip shortage and the lack of uh, new cars being manufactured, which is having an impact on supply and demand of used cars, uh, which is you know driving pricing all over the map. Um, there, you know, there's a there's a shortage of cars. There's because of the stimulus dollars that entered the economy. There's increased demand, and, and that's kind of a dynamic that this market has not seen um, in really ever. Um, and so, you know, we're we're managing through that. But really, that, those are short term issues, and we'll we'll figure it all out. Um, the longer term is, you know, people are starting to reject um the traditional well they've been they've started rejecting for years but it's it, it's been slow the traditional used car environment where they're not treated with respect they're not the, the pricing is not transparent condition of the vehicle is questionable uh recourse if they buy a bad vehicle is not there and so i think you know much like most industries that um that t that uh evolve over time I think the, there's been a fairly dramatic evolution in the used car industry where people no longer um, tolerate what what is the kind of used car dealer cocktail party joke guy. You know, someone's sitting out front of the dealership smoking a cigar and a leather trench coat waiting for the next victim. Like that's uh, that's moving away very quickly and it's being replaced by businesses that are much more, um, you know, Zappos and uh, Panera than they are, um, you know, Joey's used cars uh, with a, you know, razor wire fence around the lot and dirt. And yeah. so with, with that comes a lot of technology. It comes customer service. It comes, you know, recourse and standing behind a product and providing a, a high quality product. And, and I think we're seeing a lot more of that in addition to once that happens and people can rely on quality and don't fear uh, what what the quality of the product is, then they get more comfortable transacting online and not seeing the product before they before they take possession of it. So that's kind of the transition we're we're working through right now, and it's been really interesting to watch. And there are you know several of us who are pioneering that transition uh, to a high customer service, high customer experience uh, model. So 
I, I definitely can see how that's going to evolve forward. I'm going to kind of take a quick look back a little bit and uh, probably jump forward at the same time, which is, is based on what I've heard, you guys had a very busy 2020. Uh, you're, you're, you, you guys took your company public and you were scaling very quickly, but I'd be really curious to hear uh, from a personal and a professional level, um, how how the pandemic shaped the business and uh, how it impacted you you as a leader and uh, some of the learnings that you got from that. Yeah, I mean the pandemic was um, it was a whipsaw essentially. I mean we went we were rewind January uh, and February of 2020. We were executing on what was the greatest quarter we were ever going to have. And I remember uh, heading into March, went on spring break with my family and halfway through spring break, the NCAA tournament was canceled. You know, my kids' school, they weren't going back for a couple of weeks. And we were all thinking a couple of weeks, what would, what would possibly take a couple of weeks to figure this out? And, you know, we went basically from just hearing about somebody who was ill in, C in Seattle to the whole nation shutting down. And it all happened so, so fast. And, you know, essentially our business kind of figuratively and literally shut down for a bit and nobody really knew what the other side looked like, you know, and it, could it look like, you know, the discontinuation of our business? I mean, that was a possibility. Um, you know, how long will this last? What, what will it mean? And, and so we had to take some pretty dramatic measures. We did it in a way that I think uh, didn't destroy loyalty, but built loyalty with our people. Uh, we tried to furlough versus layoff. We tried to, you know, be uh, generous with, you know, the, the teammates that we worked so hard to, you know, grow and train, build. Um, and so I think we did that um, very thoughtfully. And that was difficult. You know, that was, uh, you know, daily, hourly Zoom calls with the whole executive team trying to figure out how exactly do we navigate through this that we've never seen before. And and also, you know, a healthy, we didn't do this on our own, healthy doses of communicating with other business leaders that we've gotten to know and um, trading ideas and talking about best practices. Everybody was kind of going through this at the, for the first time. What was interesting in our industry is how quickly it snapped back, relatively. So, you know, by, by end of March, you know, we were living doomsday, pretty much all of April, living doomsday. By the end of April, you know, we started seeing people, you know, like you can't go that long without buying a car. Like the, the, US, the, the U.S. car market is wonderful in many ways, one of which is it's very stable. Like there are 40 million transactions that happen every year, almost regardless of what's going on in the economy or whatever. People need a car to get to church. They need a car to get to school. They need a car to go to the hospital, and uh, and so and and so you know this. There was this long. There was this very strong building backlog of demand for cars, and there weren't cars being sold in March and April. And so by by May, it was like, oh my god, we can't we can't keep cars on the lot. There's so many people coming. We had to very quickly institute you know practices that kept our team safe, kept our guests safe. Um, and so we did all that. Um, and I think that again was, you know, not all us. Uh, it was, it was just collaborating with other business leaders in our industry, outside of our industry, through business leadership groups, et cetera, and really learning from each other because we were all going through this at the same time. And so that kind of, you know, that collaboration helped us 
uh, on the downswing. It also helped us on, maximize uh, what we could do on the upswing. And by by May, June, July, you know, we had, we were seeing the best year we'd ever seen, uh, which is shocking. Uh, we were kind of all back in the office by August, believe it or not, and um, uh, and kind of pushing hard on on the accelerator. And then by September, um, we had decided that we were going to go down this or evaluate the SPAC route as a way to go public and raise capital to ensure, you know, our growth plan is executable. And, and then really the end of, you know, from September through January of 2021, it was kind of all hands on deck, executing on the business plan and executing on the SPAC transaction simultaneously, both of them full-time jobs. And so, you know, we all very quickly had to say, okay, are we all in on this? Because this is going to require uh, kind of a double down and commitment to this business for a period of time uh, with, that we all signed up for. So that all happened. The transaction fortunately executed successfully, um, and, uh, and and then here we are. I I I think that's such a uplifting story. Uh, I I um, I think that we're going to see companies that were uh, struggling in that doomsday moment and then then really popped in the back half of the year, which sounds like you guys, Carlots, was certainly one of them. Those are really going to be the, the companies that become the foundation of this, of this new economy. Um, but let's kind of go back to the very end of last year. So you, you, you launched a SPAC. Uh, I've, we, we read a lot about this, this term. And just be curious, what would that process was like? And, and uh, what, are the, what are the good learnings there? Yeah, so a, a SPAC is um, it's essentially four transactions. So, and each one has to go flawlessly for it to work. Uh, the first transaction is a group of um, seasoned and experienced investors raising a pool of capital in the public markets and, and IPOing their SPAC. And so that doesn't involve us. That involves, uh, you know, there are hundreds of them now, uh, very qualified and experienced investors that go to public company investors and say, uh, buy these shares for $10 a share. We're going to launch this back. We're going to IPO. And so they raise $100 million, $300 million, a billion uh, through these SPAC entities, special purpose acquisition company. And so that's transaction one. Transaction two is when we, the company, meet the SPAC, start dating, and decide to get married. And so that's a merger transaction. So that's um, a, a very common transaction. It just happens that we're merging with, uh, essentially we're merging with a pool of capital so that we can take that capital and execute on our growth plan. And so that's transaction two. We merged or got married to a, a SPAC called Akamar Partners, which is a, it was about a $300 million SPAC that was founded uh, by uh, very seasoned investors from Advent International who had um, invested in and grown several multi-billion dollar global consumer retail brands. So we felt like it was a good, good merger. Uh, transaction three is raising what's called a pipe, which is a investment in a, it's a, essentially raising capital from public company investors into a private company um, so that we can uh, increase the chances that the that this SPAC uh, emerges as a public company. So that happened. We had, we were fortunate that we had big names like Fidelity and strategic names like Car Global and Rick Wagner, the former CEO of GM, participate in that transaction. Um, and then the fourth is when you, it's called despacking, which is when you essentially become, start trading as a public company 
all the initial investors in the original SPAC IPO kind of sign off on this uh, transaction and you just become a public company. And so that all happened in the course of, you know, essentially September through January. Um, and it's a, it's a high stress, high stakes, you know, <laughs> lots of meetings, like countless meetings on Zoom. I think, you know, the pandemic um, helped in that we weren't flying around the country and the world yeah. on all these meetings, but it hurt in that it's so easy to have meetings uh, to just click a button and be in a meeting that we would have days where we had nine, 10 meetings back to back with, you know, zero time in between, even yeah. to just go and grab a bite or use the bathroom. And so it just, it almost makes it too easy to have these meetings. Uh, so you, you end up having a, a bunch of them, but they're certainly great for investors. They don't have to travel around. It's great for the management team. We can do them all from our offices and, uh, and that helped get us, uh, get us to a successful transaction. It's it's incredible. I, I think you're the first person that's explained uh, a despacking process to me. I, I've never heard that. Uh, so that's that's good to understand that. It is the I, most critical part of the deal. I mean, basically what it is, is you've announced your transaction, you've announced the pipe, you've announced everything. And then there's this period where you try to get public company investors to learn about your story and, and see if they'll participate. And if they do, they'll start to rotate into the story. They'll buy the stock. And when you see volume of your stock trading at a price that is above the original issue price of the SPAC, which is $10, then you start to gain comfort that this is this will actually happen. And when, once you see that volume and the price, then you establish a DSPAC date or a vote date where everybody votes on the transaction happening. And that's, the, that's a successful DSPAC. And at that point, the original investors can either say, yay, I'm in, or they can take, take their $10 back. Um, and so, uh, you know, and that's called a redemption. And so in a successful SPAC, you typically have, you know, somewhere between zero and, you know, less than 50% redemptions. In some cases, you know, everybody redeems and the SPAC transactions. Incredible. I mean, what a year. You, 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 you learn you, it's like a, a dog year in a way you went through a lifetime in, in, in a year, I can see. Yeah, well, I you know I have a, a a picture on my Zoom camera, and a lot of a lot of people are like, "Wow, was that taken like ten years ago?" <laughs> and, you know, that was that was actually taken before the SPAC transaction. <laughs> That's Unfortunately. funny. That's it's funny. Good. Well, you look okay. I wouldn't worry about that too much. So, so as you look forward to the future of of the business, I mean, what 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 gives you hope, and what what excites you? Well, we are you know, literally, quite literally at the most exciting time in our company's uh, path, not without its stresses and issues, but, you know, as a company before this back transaction, we raised cumulatively about $30 million right. to grow our business. And through this SPAC transaction, we've raised $300 million. So we have 10 times as much capital as we've ever had in the history of the company cumulatively to go and execute on a very uh, high trajectory growth plan that will see us be a national business all around the country, uh, selling tens and tens of thousands of cars uh, and making a lot of money doing it. And so, uh, you know, it's been awesome to, you know, enter this period where we are no longer resource constrained. And if we need to build technology, we can hire the best technology people. And if we need to build more operational processes, we can hire the best people there mm -hmm. and, uh, and the best sales staff and the best, you know, best management staff, legal staff and accountants. That, you know, and so we're, we're now operating less as um, we're still a startup in terms of culture and fiber, 
but we are less resource constrained than um, than we've ever been in our yeah. journey. No, and you can go after the top talent, which I totally I totally agree on, and and that's that's an excellent story. Well, listen, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Uncaged. We've been talking to Michael Bohr, who is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Car Lots. We've been talking about really almost like the roller coaster ride that this business has been on uh, over the last 12, 18 months, but also the history of the business over the last decade and how it's really become a, a national force in and in, in, in reinventing the car sales experience. Michael, thank you so much. If, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, uh, where would, where's the best place to find you? So um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Michael Bohr. Um, I, uh, obviously our website, carlots.com, carlotswithaz.com is a great place to go to learn more about the business and where we operate and who, how we can help. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us, Michael. And I'm excited to hear the rest of how this story unfolds. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers.